a pleasure to have on our interview series this morning Brian Dorman, co-founder and non-executive director of Regis Healthcare and chairman of private investment office Dorman Capital. Founded in 1991, Regis has grown to become one of Australia's largest and most successful aged care and retirement living companies, operating in excess of 65 facilities across the nation, incorporating some 6,000 places. In 2014, the company was listed on the Australian Stock Exchange and has a market capitalisation exceeding $600 million. Over the course of the past decade or so, the business has also generated investment interest from some of the country's most revered institutions, including Macquarie Capital and Washington H. Sol Pattinson. By his private investment vehicle, Dorman Capital, Brian is an active investor in both operating businesses and property development projects, with recent capital deployments, including in the pet stock chain and the revitalisation of the Munda Town Centre. Brian, pleasure speaking with you this morning and, and welcome to the series. I'd, Thought I'd open up with your thoughts on the current environment. In particular, I've been speaking with people who are concerned about brand Melbourne and, and what the future holds. Give us an indication of your impression of, of where we sit and, and the current business conditions. I presume you're referring to the last two years mainly. Correct. Yeah. Look, uh, the, town and the, um, the town and the state has been pretty well devastated. People are very defensive. Uh, they're insecure. So unless that changes, um, people's investment maps will not uh, re reinvigorate, re revitalise. So, you know, it's not too complicated. When people are happy and getting about their lives, they tend to think more proactively. When they're uh, locked down, as we are now, or under a curfew, um, they tend to become very defensive. And I think that's very indicative of the property market, where people are uh, investing heavily in their residential environments and not outside the areas of their control. You know, so I think um, business investment has slowed. There was a lot of capital construction work uh, in train in Victoria, pri primarily initiated by the government and their funding. But outside that, I don't think there's a lot. I know in my sector, um, we've pulled the reins right in. We haven't done any property development for nearly three years now, beyond the COVID period for other reasons. Now, like all industries, COVID has had a significant impact across the aged and healthcare sectors, particularly in regard to the safety of wellbeing of staff and residents. Take me through the impacts of the past 18 months on the Regis business, but also on the industry more broadly. Yeah. Look, if you recall back to February last year, we didn't really have any concept of what was going to happen. Um, we heard a little from overseas um, about places being shut down and Wuhan is the obvious example. Then it hit the other European countries, Italy firstly and then others, and we still didn't have any concept of it. When it finally hit us, in, I think it was in early March, uh, March the 12th I think was the date that uh, our Premier decided to cause uh, the state to shut down, um, we still didn't have any idea of the impact on the elderly at the time. But over that probably six month period, um, our Regis and our industry sector became quite competent at dealing with it. In our case, we had one site where we had 11 deaths, and remembering that we've got over 2,000 residents in Victoria. So um, I think uh, the staff at Regis, and I think generally the industry, with help from external sources, such as the federal government's funding of protective equipment and protective gear and whatnot, we got on top of it. The trouble was it was so endemic 
uh, and, and it travelled so quickly that we couldn't protect some of the elderly. There's a little bit of confusion about that in that most of the people that died had what's called comorbidities. They had other things wrong with them. A lot of them had breathing problems, um, dementia, uh, onsets, uh, heart problems and, and, and organs. And, and that sort of brought on their death rather than caused it, the COVID situation, yeah. So I think the industry, in Victoria particularly, has coped incredibly well, given that there's um, six, uh, probably 80,000 residents in Victoria, maybe 60,000 residents in, in nursing homes. And I think the level of deaths was quite manageable, given that it was less than the flu endemic two years earlier. We lost more people in the flu virus process in 2018 than we did in, in COVID. One of the major trends of recent times has been intrastate migration away from metropolitan areas toward regional areas, but also interstate migration, particularly to Queensland. Has this thematic had a material effect on demand and therefore the business's pipeline of new projects or facilities? Well, Victoria projected 5% growth in, I guess, GDP each year for the last t um, eight or 10 years. And we had 6% population growth each year. So I'm wondering where the GDP came from. It was immigration, you know, increase in population. So obviously if we've got a negative uh, reduction, or a, a, I think it was last figure was 42,000 people had left the state, the growth isn't there, therefore I don't think the relative GDP uh, impacts are there either. So without doubt, reduction in population will cause the Victorian economy to contract. Given international borders remain closed until at least of the end of this year, if not later. Population growth, as you said, and migration continue to suffer. How would you evaluate the effects of closed borders in being able to hire and attract new staff? Well, um, speaking from my sector again, the aged care sector, we have a, a very high reliance on um, staff from overseas countries, Indians, Filipinos. Uh, we've got uh, quite a few from the Southeast Asia area working for us. and. They fill a, a big gap in terms of resource because most of our staff are uh, what we call carers or non-skilled, um, they're not nurses. We have about 20% nurses. So from our sector, we'll, it'll be, have a big impact. Uh, we used to employ a lot of students part-time um, and they're not there. Uh, so from that perspective, uh, big impact. Um, and I think it'll have a significant impact on restructuring the way in which uh, workforces are, are managed in Victoria. Now prior to COVID there was also the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety that commenced in October 2018, I think wrapped up sometime in March of this year. Talk to me about how this commission was perceived across the industry and did it assist large established players like Regis Healthcare as opposed to you know weeding out some of the unscrupulous players that we've seen? Yeah, unscrupulous. I don't think they're unscrupulous. I just think uh, without being unfair to any of them, they just don't have the competencies that are required in aged care now. When I started in aged care, 50% of our residents were what, what were called low care. They would drive their own car and play bridge, you know, but they couldn't live at home. They needed someone to help them with their basic lifestyle issues, such as showering and cooking meals. That's all changed in the last six or eight years um, and was pushed on by the Treasury in 2016 when they started funding home care needs. So all those people that were previously low care in nursing homes have gone, they're at home. 
what we've got is 99% um, uh, well, of our residents are what you'd call subacute. We're actually now, most all of our homes are hospitals without operating theatres and doctors. And the skill level needed to look after those people in a subacute environment are far greater than what they were 10 years ago. It's been a progression. So when you said unscrupulous, no, they're, they're, they're just not capable of dealing with that change in the demographics of their residents. And we, ha we have spent a lot of time and effort in our organisation, as most of the larger organisations have, in building systems and processes around that need. The smaller operators, those that operate one or two homes, just don't have that resource. So consolidation of the industry will happen, but it'll be slow. It doesn't happen overnight. Before we move on, I'm interested to get your thoughts on how you find the current level of regulation across the sector and are governments, either federal or state, doing enough to support aged care businesses? Um, well, let's twofold that question. Uh, the regulation is intense. It's a good word. The way in which they police it is uh, not good for the operators. Uh, I have a view that a conciliatory, cooperative, joint efforts in improving standards is a better way to uh, develop the level of care that is necessary. Um, the legislators, the politicians and the bureaucrats see that regulation and control. And I guess we digress there. Um, and so has the 2021 Royal Commission report changed anything? Not yet. It'll take three to five years. They're setting up various different mechanisms to manage the industry, um, including uh, pricing authority, uh, compliance authority. Uh, and, and I think the intent of the Royal Commission was to, to, to move it away from government, direct government control and set up commissions. But that's a process. They also undertook to rewrite the Aged Care Act. The Aged Care Act was written in 1997 and in a time when the needs of the community were different. So that seriously needs reworking or rewriting. So the impact of the Royal Commission won't hit us for three to five years, but it'll be gradual. We've got a new pricing uh, funding mechanism coming through in July next year where the government will uh, introduce a new method of, of, of funding our industry and they pay for our 70 to 80 percent of our care so it's a bit tough having one customer uh, when they control the regulation as well so you know uh, we're forever battling and they're forever battling us I guess. <laughs> Let's briefly delve into your career pre-Regis as I understand it you started your professional working life as an accountant, having studied accounting at university before working within a business called Rees Partners. Talk to me about your background and what attracted you to the field of accounting. It was interesting, I sort of fell into it. Um, I was born in the country town in Gippsland and Maffra and loved the life. We moved out when I was 14. My father took over as a licensee nominee of the Riversdale Hotel in Camberwell. And I was working there behind the, behind the bar, well not allowed behind the bar when I was 14, but working in and around the hotel in most facets. And I learned a lot about uh, the business and about people. It was a great place to learn, to understand people. Uh, I learned too much and I really enjoyed my later years at secondary school to the extent that I failed my last year, year 12, because I was enjoying sport and girls too much. You know, it was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and then I wandered around a bit. I backpacked a bit and worked in a few companies for a short period of time. Didn't really find what I liked. Um, worked on the Cape ships that serviced the lighthouses um, as a, an exec officer for a couple of years. It was fantastic. I saw a lot of the countryside, the coast more than the countryside. And it was great experience too uh, in logistics. Uh, then I went back and got a, a canning degree and a, a law diploma. Um, it took me eight years. So it sort of changed my direction completely. And I was, I was always interested in sport and playing footy with a couple of guys. They said, come and join me at Rees Partners as a, as, a, as a worker, an employee initially, and a partner in, I think, 1978 or thereabouts. And that just changed the dynamic in my life completely, um, working with people in small business and business, working with some very interesting people in the uh, business community, public companies as well as private. And I learned a lot in a very short space of time and saw some um, interesting things in the business community. So it completely changed my direction in life. And in that time, I met the girl who I'm still married to. We had our 47th wedding anniversary this week. So I met her at Sunbury Pop Festival, of all places. <laughs> that was interesting. So, you know, the whole direction of my life from being aimless and lost as a teenager and early 20s guy, um, I moved into a more direct uh, future. And through that, uh, particularly Rees Partners, it wasn't just an accounting firm that did tax returns and audit. It was very much focused on business activity. So we set up a, a, a Rees Partners and Trust with clients and we invested in businesses and properties and, and that was really the, the start of my adventure in the business world, running, owning and operating businesses. I want to ask you about that because as you said, you, I think, joined Rees Partners in 1977. You spent 23 years as a partner at the business. What sort of grounding did that give you later in life, particularly with Regis Healthcare? Counting firms are a service entity. entity. They, they provide human resources. So managing people in that disciplined environment was very important. And we had, it wasn't a big firm, we only had 50 to 70 people and three to five partners over a period of time. Uh, but making sure that they were effective in their time, uh, how they allocated their time, uh, was very important. And how, how you manage the balance sheet of the business. And I became very good at that in that sort of concept in being the managing partner for a number of years. In managing the debtors and the creditors and, and the work in progress in an accounting and law firm's the same. Everywhere, even now, that's the same but I became quite good at managing the balance sheets of, of the business and also learned about a lot of diverse businesses, all sorts of in industries and sectors. Uh, uh, when you're in that sort of base level accounting firm, you do learn a, bit, a lot about the, the community at large and the businesses at large. Now let's discuss the origins of the Regis Healthcare business. You've spoken previously about the experience I think you had in the 1980s when you first walked into an aged care facility in Brunswick. Well, what impact did that have on you? Oh, overwhelming. You know, I, I'd been advising a few of the small nursing operators, mainly nurses, who'd taken over a lease of an old building. In those days, care in a nursing home was pretty basic. Um, the ratio was very low. There'd be 30 people in the building, 20 of them would be women, 10 men, but have two showers and two toilets. Uh, because there was no funding for it. The federal government only took over funding during, um, I think, off Whitlam's era. Before that, it was funded each by the states, mainly focused on returned servicemen and ladies. So the industry has evolved during the developing wealth of the community. 
So the 1997 Act changed all that and provided a mechanism whereby residents could pay a bond and that money had to be used in building better facilities and that was the success of Regis. But back to the 80s, I walked, it was just horrible experience. It was a men's ward, there must have been 12 guys in there and, and had a, um, swinging doors like a hospital with metal plates on them. Mm. And uh, the men were being either fed in their bed or beside the bed. There was no dining facilities. The day, the day room for the 30, it was actually 50 people in the nursing home. The day room was as big as this room. Uh, so they'd have seats all around the walls and they'd go and sit there for four and six hours a day, half asleep. So the, the life for an elderly resident in a nursing home in, in Australia, not just Victoria, in the 80s was pretty grim. So and an old mate of mine who's since died, Greg Scott and I, were very keen to say, look, if we're going to get into aged care, let's have a positive impact and do something good. So uh, that was part of our charter early on. Um, and it inspired me, you know. Funnily enough, if somebody had said to me in 1989 that I'd be involved in one of the biggest aged care providers in Australia, I'd be laughing. Uh, the reality is that, um, uh, you know, early on I developed an inspiration, not an inspiration, a perspiration and desire to um, do something in the, in the sector. And to, many, to, to a great extent it's worked out, yeah. As I understand it, next came a chance encounter whilst you were on holiday, I think, in the Sunshine Coast with your family with a gentleman called Ian Roberts. Talk to me about what you discussed on that holiday and, and what came next. Well, it was a funny encounter. I, was, I had my wife and two young boys, um, Nick and Andrew, about two and six, I think, or two and five, and we were staying in a holiday apartment and below us was a chap named John Roberts. And I used to play clarinet socially, just in the, when the kids were asleep, really. And he came up and said, you're the worst clarinet player in Australia. <laughs> and we hit it off. John and I, we were great mates. That was Ian's father. And through that association with John initially, uh, I started doing a few small projects with the family. They were based in Queensland. They were originally from Melbourne, but uh, they moved up there in the early 80s. Uh, so I did a few projects through my accounting practice with them. Um, and they invested in some of our development projects. Um, they're all successful, moderately or were highly successful, but we, we didn't have any real failures, except for one, but I won't dwell on that. Um, so the relationship built, we both worked on it. Um, Ian, living in Queensland, came down monthly to attend our board meetings, and um, you know he was a willing participant in it all. And that's how the relationship evolved, like a good relationship, so you test them over time. And if they stay strong, they persist. And Ian and I have been partners for over 30 years now. You know, totally different people, but we work well together. Now, following that initial discussion, as I understand it, you resolved to go into business together, officially launching Regis Healthcare with the acquisition of two leasehold properties or assets, one in Frankston, I think, and one in Mildura in around about 1991. Yes. Talk to me about the original vision you both had for the business and the process you went through in, in order to fund those acquisitions. Original vision, yeah. Look, we didn't have any visions of grandeur. The vision we had is making, of making those two nursing homes a success. And early on I did all the debtors, creditors, payroll, hiring, firing, uh, quality assurance, uh, you know, I was, I was an innocent uh, in the whole process. I, every day I learned something. And uh, luckily we had a really good manager up in Queensland, uh, sorry, in Mildura, who, and 
worked with us for 30 years. She was terrific and she's since retired. The Frankston home was, uh, wasn't a good place. It wasn't really designed for long term. It was like that one in Brunswick. So we sold that pretty quickly and then said, well, what do we do next, you know? Um, and that was the next stage where we uh, looked at alternatives. And I don't know whether your next question will lead to this, but we bought what was called then the Queensland Nursing Home Group, which was a family up there that had old buildings and really didn't want to transition into the new generation. Um, and this is in the early 90s. Um, and they knew that the new act was coming and it required a different style of management. So they were interested in moving on, so we bought them. And um, that was our next stage in Queensland where we grew, yeah. Regis grew rapidly, as you mentioned there, over the next two decades, attracting interest from Macquarie Capital Back Retirement Care Australia in circa 2007. How did you go about growing and positioning the business during that period of, of those two decades? Well, it was, again, balance sheet management. Um, in the 97 Act allowed us to attract bonds uh, from the residents. And the original Act said the bonds were worth about, um, I think, $15,000. Uh, and the Act said you could retain 50% over a five-year period. That was the original Act. Uh, and I don't know whether you recall, but John Howard cut out the fact that we could take bonds on high care. So we can only take bonds on low care residents. And that created a concept of ageing in place where you'd take a bond from a resident to low care and they'd transition to high care. So well, I used the balance sheet of the bonds to help the banks fund our development program. So we would find a site, put together a development proposition, uh, usually about 60 to 90 beds in the, in the facility, and we'd say, okay, you fund the construction, ANZ principally, um, or NAB, one of the big first tier banks, and out of the bonds we'd repay the debt. So effectively, um, the balance sheet showed uh, an asset of a building and a liability of a bond. Um, and that was a, a, an evolving process where we actually owed the bank up to, I think it was about $250 million for the development program that we had. And they were pretty assured of getting it because the bonds were flowing in all the time. And I don't think ever, oh, I don't think I've had experiences of, ever of uh, a bond that we replaced when someone passes on being less than the bond that we originally received. So the, the bond market is pretty stable. Yeah, And that, that helped us. You know, we, we were able to absolve our debt as, as and when we opened up the, the, each facility. Uh, it probably took 18 months, 12 to 18 months to repay that debt on each, each one. During that time, we built a pretty good capacity for uh, management. I always focused on each, each home is a satellite with a manager uh, and they're skilled in certain areas, all different, every nursing home is different. So we set up a central uh, management office to supplement the resources at the nursing home that they didn't have, either financial, quality assurance, um, recruitment, training, those sorts of things. They didn't, some of them didn't have all the skills, so we'd supplement and that's how I perceived the Regis organisation being set up with a resource at head office, not just a resource at head office to tell everybody what to do, but a resource at head office to supplement the skills at the nursing home. And that's still the model that's... Uh, it's changed a lot. It's become quite a bureaucracy because it's so large. We've got 9,000 employees.
and the way in which we have to administer nursing homes now is very much compliance based with documentation and we're, we're ever, forever playing a catch-up game on IT which is technology to back up the information processes. Yeah. Speaking of Macquarie, it took I think a circa 44% stake in the business in 2007 only to sell it back to yourself and Ian in 2013. Talk to me about the merger with Retirement Care Australia. Well, you know, we were a growing organisation. We had about uh, two and a half to three thousand beds, or let's say two and a half thousand beds at the time, and we had the infrastructure to manage, which is the concept I was just describing. And they didn't. They were a uh, an investment organisation that had assets that needed really good hands-on management, and the skill resource in the industry uh, then, and to some extent, it's changed, but it's still not good at management level is, is, is it's um, nomadic, it comes and goes. So we, we had a management system or we thought we had a management system that would um, compensate a rapid growth in the number of beds. We went to about 4,800 beds I think or something thereabouts. And we amalgamated the two organisations. They had a lot of old Salvation Army assets where the assets had been built on land donated and there was no real site plan. Some of the sites are a bit dysfunctional, but uh, by and large we assimilated them over a three to four year period into our systems. It took that long and by the time 212 came we were pretty much a um, well run organisation in the context of aged care with, with a range of assets in terms of quality. A lot of new stuff that we'd built and a lot of old Salvation Army homes. Yeah, it was a good relationship. They were great people to work with. Um, very intelligent, very business oriented, very competent. Um, they relied on myself, <clears throat> I was exec chairman at the time, to um, make sure the, uh, the strategy was fulfilled um, and part of that strategy was obviously to replace me with someone who could manage a larger corporate organisation which we did in about 2010 I think. Yeah, no, it was a good relationship. I enjoyed working with them. I'm still friends with um, um, some of the nominated directors uh, today. Yeah. Fast forward to 2014 and Regis listed on the stock exchange where it remains today in a $1.1 billion float. I'm interested to get your opinion on the drivers that led to the decision to list the business and then also how you would evaluate the performance of the business over the last six or seven years. Well, we bought Macquarie out in about 2013, I think. Uh, they had to accept because of the uh, nature of the trust document that they were um, administering. And the float came about, and Macquarie managed the float. Um, so you can imagine how good our relationship was. But of course they saw some revenue in it. Uh, why did we float? Well, we felt that we couldn't grow anymore. Um, we also wanted to um, uh, release some of our, our investment capital, which we did. Um, we took uh, some money off the table. And we felt that the public markets were attuned to the sector at the time, whereby we could um, achieve some uh, further growth. And the values attributed to public market companies are different to private sector. Um, so we felt we'd be realising some of our value in that equation uh, around about that time. So yeah, it was interesting, uh, very complex. Um, process floating a company, particularly of size, you know. 
Before we move on, it would seem that the level of compliance and reporting and being a listed business is extremely onerous. In hindsight, what do you see as the advantages or disadvantages of being a listed company? Well, they're quite, they're quite simple. The disadvantages are the complex legislation in Australia uh, and the requirements of compliance and risk management. Uh, they're not entrepreneurial and uh, they are um, a negative incentive to business growth. At the same time, they introduce disciplines that private companies don't have. Um, I think the disciplines are outweigh the benefits. So from that perspective, uh, whilst I'm comfortable in the public markets, um, and that was the subject of a discussion I had with Solpats last year. I preferred it that uh, our sector be in the private sector. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, reflecting on the Regis business over the past 30 or so years, what are the fundamentals that you look at either prior to acquiring a new development site or developing a new centre? They're all satellites. Every nursing home in Australia has its own particular characteristics. The land site, the community, the, the local government, the nature of the population in that area, you know, in other words, residents, they all come from different backgrounds. The staffing is a major issue in Australia at the moment, getting the, the staff and, and training them up and retaining them. We have, our industry has 30% turnover of staff because of the nature of their remuneration. It's well below, I think they get as much at McDonald's as they do in our sector for the carers. And that's controlled by the government, of course, uh, and they've, they've purposely done that. So every site's different. So we've got to go through a fairly intensive evaluation process before we even consider building something on a site or in a community. Uh, and of course, we have to look at our competition, the number of homes in the area. So they're the, they're the fundamentals to a decision on a site. And as I said, every site's different. We've got them all around the country. What are the keys to running a business profitably but also sustainably over the past 30 or so years? Oh, gosh, they're, they're complex. Any, any human resource business, remember 90% of our investment is in property but 90% of our effort is in people. So um, once we've built the building we've got to make sure it's maintained but after that it's totally human resource management. Systems, processes, training uh, and commitment to the staff. We spend a lot of time I used to say to them when I was running the show, I'd say, you might think that, you, that they live in your workplace, but you actually work in their home. And, you know, some, some of the staff got that. Uh, it's a very simple statement, but it's very relevant that these people live there 24-7. No other environment. When you go to hospital, you go to in for five days and the insurance companies basically kick you out after five days. I'm being flippant there. In aged care, people live with us for two to three years and more. Yeah. Based on your experience, what do you think makes a successful aged care facility? Oh, without doubt, the, the management and the integrity of the management, the, uh, the ability of the management to manage in a 100-bed facility, they've got 100 staff, and they're all different times, they work different times, a lot of them are part-timers, because we our intense periods in the home are during morning showering, meals, three meals, and bedtime, they're the intense periods. Uh, so we have a very uh, peaks and troughs in our human resource needs. So what makes, without doubt, the manager, um, and 
the greatest weakness in our sector is uh, the management skill. If you look at it, uh, a hundred bed nursing home costs about four, 40 million to 50 million to build. They've got a hundred staff, they've got a hundred residents and hundred residents families. They've got all the contractors and suppliers. So they've got a community of around three to 400 people in that, and a manager uh, has a big responsibility. Um, and, and we've been, our industry's been under-resourced in that sector uh, for a long time. Um, the difficulty is there's no recognised qualification and we recruit our managers from all sorts of areas. You know, we've had Qantas bloody cabin staff, we've had bank officers, nurses, um, you know, a vast range of skill sets in our management environment. And um, even now, Regis spends a lot of time at head office supplementing those, those skill sets at the manager level. Even though we've become far more compliant and bureaucratic, we still spend most of our head office effort in making sure the nursing home manager has the resources to look after those people. Because our primary driver is the resident. They've got to keep them happy, healthy and safe. Uh, you know, uh, and that's been the primary driver in the organisation throughout. If, if the residents are happy, everyone's happy. Speaking of the residents, I'm interested to know how have their needs changed over the years and then how have you had to adapt the facilities to facilitate their, their needs? Yeah, it's, it's changed. Um, the first home we built was Laura Gardens. We built, there was 27 square metres per resident. That included the living area, the particular areas, the, the rooms. And the, and, the, and the facilities areas. Uh, the latest uh, design uh, that we have out at Campbellwell is going to be 65 square metres per resident. The, the whole concept's changed. The services environment and the, you know, the facilities environment in each nursing home, the areas that people use, has been developed significantly. So uh, the rooms are still basically the same size. They've got single rooms with en-suites. They're all basically the same size. But the community area's much bigger. So the lifestyle they lead is different. Yet our resident population has aged and the type of resident we have is now subacute compared to that first one we built in 1997. In terms of the ageing population, I think I read the other day, in 1980, I think the, the average life expectancy was about 74, 75 years. Yeah. Now it's 82, 83. Has that been a benefit for aged care operators? Well, it gives us a bigger population to pick from. <laughs> uh, look, no, it's tougher in our industry now caring for the elderly because of their, their age and their, um, their, their general wellbeing, their health. Um, when I started, we used to build nursing homes with 15-bed dementia wards in a, in a 60 or 90-bed facility, because that's the best hub. Uh, now, 80% of our residents have dementia, because the brain just starts to deteriorate at the age of 80, you know, or whatever, even younger. But the fact is, dementia is a far higher impact on our industry now than it ever was. And Strangely enough, the Treasurer at the time in 2016 cut out dementia funding. So, you know, the, the governments see aged care as a cost. Uh, some governments see it as a community service, but most of the particularly parts of government see aged care as a cost that has to be controlled. 
Now, before we move on to Dorman Capital, I thought I'd get your views on investment appetite for healthcare assets. You've seen some of the sales for uh, healthcare properties over the last 18 months in particular, certainly the flavour of the month in terms of both domestic investors and some international investors. How are you finding the commercial property market from that healthcare perspective? Uh, commercial property, look, I'll, I'll, go, I'll tackle that question th this way. As the countries around the world become more wealthy, the percentage of GDP on healthcare increases. Um, for years we were about 10 or 12%. America has been at 20% for a long time. We're getting up there, but we're not there yet. So the appetite for healthcare investments increases with, with the percentage of GDP. So there are countries in the world that spend 5% on GDP, of health on GDP, or definition of health. And if you're looking to um, an opportunity in the healthcare sector, you'd be seriously investigating those countries to see whether there's enough wealth emerging for the percentage of GDP to, mm. to spend on health. So, and if you use the Americans as a yardstick, 20% is a good number. Five years ago, I went to a Macquarie function. They said the areas of growth are education and, and healthcare. And I couldn't disagree with the healthcare. I didn't know enough about education spending. But that's apart from COVID, their pre, their prediction was pretty accurate. Yeah. Now, so there's still some opportunity, but it's it's diminishing. Now we're in the offices of your private investment vehicle, as I mentioned in the opening, Dorman Capital. Take me through the business in terms of who's involved and and what the mandate is. Well, when I was in the accounting practice, I had a relationship with a family. Um, it progressed from being just doing their tax returns to being their secretary to being on the board and chairing the group. And I watched how they hadn't really planned generationally. You know, there were some sons and daughters in there that really, their, their future hadn't been shaped, or hadn't been given independence. So I, I, I learned a lot from that and uh, I was pretty determined not to let that happen in my family. So um, my oldest son is 39 now, but. I've been nurturing him through working in Reese. He worked in a couple of. He worked in the Macquarie buyout and the and the, and the float and various other things. So he's had a, and then he worked overseas for a while. The other sons lived in London for a while doing things. So they've had a lot of external experience, and I wanted to prepare them for the generational issue. Um, so I set up Dorman Capital initially with Ian back in 2010, 12. We worked together for a while, but. Uh, the generational ages were different with him, so we said, look, it's probably best if we go our own way, amicably. And um, uh, I set Dorman Capital up to be able to invest in property, which um, uh, is a good core stable investment, and businesses uh, of varying types. Like my early journey when I was in my 30s, uh, I had interest in a lot of different businesses. So that's the direction of Dorman Capital, to have a stable generational investment vehicle. And what are you seeing in both of those asset classes, starting with operating businesses and then also in the property sector? Well, the property's been pretty good. The cap rates on properties has been very strong during the low interest period. So, um, but I think with property, you've got to take a 10 to 15 year view. We've got some development sites that we're working on that are still in the pipeline, but generally I've always taken a longer term view with property. And it's, it's a good base for any, um, any, any balance sheet. I think um, 
So most of the funds I, I deployed after the float were into property. In the business sector, the world's changing, you know, from when I was a young guy. Some of the big business successes over the last 10 years have just been amazing in sectors where the balance sheet has no assets on them. Google, um, Facebook, they have no assets on the balance sheet. No, no hard assets, no tables, no chairs, no cars. Yet they're valued at what they are. So the world's a changing dynamic. So I'm, I'm, I think I've missed that era. And my boys are far more attuned to it, thankfully. So I think that's the biggest change in investment, is the nature of the balance sheet of companies and the values people place on intangible assets, i.e. Google and Facebook. There's a huge value placed on an asset that you can't put your, you, can, you can't hold. I've always seen Australia as a big gravel pit and sheep farm. It has changed a little. You know, the sheep aren't there anymore, but the gravel is. So there's still a lot of wealth eked out of the ground in, in Australia over the next X years. China's been a massive impact on our country over the last 20 years. It's just phenomenal what's gone on in China. So they're the two major catalysts, the intangible assets on balance sheets of successful companies and the fact that um, we've gone away. 75 to 80% of our revenue in Australia is service-based. So we don't make anything anymore. We export the country. Um, and it's something to reflect on uh, for the future. I want to ask you about that exact thing. There's been a lot of talk recently about a return to domestic manufacturing and our capabilities to do that. Do you see that as a growth industry moving forward? It's a difficult space. I was in Toughmaster Carpets, which is a carpet manufacturer back in the 80s, and we were protected by tariffs then. When the government took the tariffs away, we had to struggle against imports that we couldn't because of the labour cost. Our great problem is we're a wealthy uh, society and people are, just aren't prepared to uh, work in those environments for competitive wage rates. So I, I think we'd have to be very selective about what we do here, what we manufacture here, in such a way that we can compete on the wage environment. And I, so far I haven't seen much. Future of Australia's relationships with its regional peers, in particular China, do you have a view on that? Yeah, look, the China environment's been shaped by the leader. Well, that's what I read. Um, leaders come and go. But with China, I describe them as inscrutable. They're very, very single-minded and tough. So this, this will be a, a, a decade-long isolation for our country. That's the way I read it. And uh, we have to prepare. And as they did when they shut out a few of our sectors recently in the trade environment, we have to be prepared to go elsewhere. But um, it's different when, you know, 70% of the Chinese product is exported. Uh, you know, everything that we consume in terms of manufactured product, not probably 80% or 70% comes out of China. Now, just to round out our discussion, reflecting on your career, and it's been an extraordinary career, what are the key lessons you've learnt along the way? Gee, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, without doubt, it's the people. I used to say to my boys, you run with dogs, you get fleas. It's a terrible statement, but it's pretty true. If you mix with good people, if you make sure you keep integrity to the extent you can in the business community, because sometimes it gets a bit tough, uh, I think it's the people that you rub shoulders with, the people that you mix with, uh, and the people that you do business with is very important. Yeah, particularly in a country like Australia, where 
a fair go used to be, or still is in some respects, the attitude of the community. Now, outside of work, you've obviously got a number of hobbies, golf and yachting, but perhaps less well known because you don't advertise it is all of the work you do from a charity perspective and philanthropic perspective. Tell me about some of the initiatives that you've got underway that you're passionate oh, about. Oh, okay, yeah, great. Well, when we took some money off the table in the float, I said, I've got to give some back. So we set up a Dorman Family Foundation. And, you know, being perfectly truthful, some of the larger uh, charities, the the return on investment is not all that good. You know, sometimes there's 40 cents in the dollar gets to the end consumer, sometimes less. Uh, so we've targeted a sector uh, around town, around the country, where uh, it's low profile, but um, we get a high yield on them. You know, uh, we help out kids who are uh, lower socioeconomic areas in buying school uniforms and school books for them so they don't get embarrassed when they turn up at school. And that, you know, we had some great successes there. We funded, uh, we helped fund uh, things like the Amy Gillett Foundation, which before it became government sponsored, we got them off the ground in our own way. And I'm also made, involved in an organisation called Making Waves Foundation through my yachting uh, enjoyment. Um, they provide ocean sailing and sailing experiences for physically and mentally disabled kids. And uh, one of the most enjoyable moments in my life was watching them when they first get on the boat, you know, uh, the, the joy in their face, because they live a very closeted life. And it's, it's just an absolute treasure to behold. So um, we're trying to expand that to a national platform at the moment. It was originally based in Sydney, because yachting in Sydney is, you know, everyone yachts in Sydney. Um, so we're trying to expand that to a national platform into Queensland and Victoria initially um, on a larger scale. And we also provide in that organisation uh, support to kids who are on their way, uh, disadvantaged homes or on their way to jail. We give them um, exposure to uh, yachting and, and disciplines that they wouldn't have experienced in their lives because you need a lot of discipline when you're out in the ocean to work as a team. And they're very important. So. There's some of the things I'm involved in, which I really enjoy. Well, Brian Dorman, absolute pleasure having a chat with you this morning. Not only a fantastic business person, but just a good person at heart as well. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Rob. I enjoyed that.